and suddenly the uh, summer weather has arrived. Just like that. Uh, okay. It was a nice spring. I enjoyed both weeks. Lately, I've been getting these mixed messages, right? Pull up the weather report, see what the workday is going to be like. Rain, 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 rain. It's also going to be 95 degrees. So, mixed message. I used to get uh, mixed messages from my mom when I was uh, a boy. She would tell me this uh, story every once in a while. She'd say, you know, you are just the boy I would pick. If I could, I was her only son, so she could say this. She'd say, if I could line up all the boys in the world, I would pick you. Then I'd do something to irritate her, and she'd say, you know, you could be replaced. Okay, which is it? Because both of those things can't work. Most of us, uh, most of us have been told things by by mom, maybe you've, maybe you've heard this one. You would lose your head if it wasn't Sweden. That's essentially the message of Colossians that Paul has been preaching to us so far. You would lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. Uh, where is your head at? What in the world are you thinking? So by way of review, let's just talk about the things that we've discovered in Colossians so far. I'm not going to read all these verses because basically I'd have to read the whole first two chapters of Colossians, and then that would take us uh, quite a bit of time. But I would encourage you to do that because those chapters are chock full. There's lots of great stuff in there. I would encourage you to, to reread those. But here's the things that Paul has taught us uh, in those first two chapters. First of all, Christ is supreme in all things. He is the creator, and whatever power there is in all of heaven, in all of earth, that power is subordinate to him. He has absolute, complete authority. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. He even has power over sin and death. And in him, Paul says, are contained all of the mysteries. All of the wisdom, all of the knowledge you could ever seek is contained within Christ. He is, in essence, the cure. If, if life is broken, he is the fix. He is the cure. And he says that those who are in Christ have already been given victory over the darkness. We have been, he says, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, into Christ's kingdom. We were once alienated and enemies in our minds to God, but we have been reconciled to God through the physical death of his son, Jesus Christ. He says we've been made whole and that when the judgment comes, we will be presented as blameless because we are in Christ. And then he essentially asks this difficult question. Why, if you have been set free, would you return to your cage? Where is your head at? What are you thinking? 
And then he offers us these explanations for people who return to their prisons. He says they are taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Paul says in, in the beginning here, he says that the goal, his goal in this discussion is he wants to see us grow in faith so that we won't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Essentially, he says, a trap is always set for you. There are always bad ideas. There are always bad powers. There are always bad religions. And they are a trap set for you to take your mind captive. And my goal is that you would be courageous, that you would be unified, that you would have a full understanding of all the mystery of Christ, that you would continue steadfastly in your faith. Yet, he knows that some, even in the body, are going to champion bad religion. They're going to profess a false piety. And he says of these people that they are unscriptural. In fact, he says they have lost their connection to the head. Now, Christ is the head of the church and supreme in every last thing. And yet it is possible for us to come, some, to, come to serve something that is not actually Jesus, but that is still Jesus-themed, still Jesus-flavored. If you think about it, in our culture today, Christian is not so much a noun as it is an adjective. We have Christian music, and we have Christian books, and we have uh, Christian radio. Well, that doesn't mean that the radio station is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That doesn't mean that those books are living as disciples. It's just an adjective we'd applied to say that this book, this product, this music is themed Christian. And the, and the challenge for us is that we can actually get to a point where our church and our lives can be themed after Christ, but don't actually follow Christ. Meanwhile, the world around us is just as Paul warns us it will be. He says it's full of hollow philosophies. If you've been watching the news, you have been confronted, I guarantee, by gender theory, critical race theory, identity theory, climate theory, all of these things couched in terms of academics and science. In fact, we're reminded on a daily basis that we need to be following the science, or at least somebody's version of the science. But let's call these things what they are. They are secular dogma. They are religious cults of empty philosophies. Now, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, but the church of secular dogma does not recognize this separation. And so it's constantly wanted to introduce these cultic religion, bad religion ideas into our cultural institutions. That's dangerous. That's significant. There's been a call lately, conservative media anyway, there's been a call to churches to begin to speak truth into this darkness. 
it occurs to me that the problem is not that churches and church leaders and preachers like myself are not willing to speak truth into the darkness. The problem is nobody is listening. Not listening. People in America today do not go to the church when they're looking for answers about life. They just don't. So we say, well, we're willing to speak the truth, but will anyone listen? I want to submit to you this morning that the church has lost its voice because it has lost its head. I certainly don't mean to say that all followers of Jesus are cut off from Jesus. There's some beautiful followers of Jesus. But the church has become an entity to itself. It lives for its own function. It's really easy for us to forget, in all honesty, and I tell you this, uh, aware of my own personal weakness in this regard, it is easy for us to forget that the gospel is not about our programs. It's not about our buildings. It's not about our budgets. It's not, in essence, about us. The world does not need to hear from us. The world needs to hear from Jesus. You see, if at the end of my lifetime, nobody has paid any attention to anything that I have said, and I have said a lot over the years, but if nobody has paid any attention to what I have said, the world will keep on spinning. But if we stop listening to what Jesus has to say, the world literally comes to an end. This is what's important. Not that they admire me. Not that they admire us. Not that they look at our buildings and our programs and say, wow, you guys got it going on. You've got a lot of neat stuff. No, that they see Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. The gospel is completely about Jesus. It is about his supremacy. It is about hope and life that can only be had through Jesus Christ. Now, I have to tell you, I've told some of you, and I, I, I can't stop talking about it really because it's such a amazing week for us, but last weekend we were down in, in Arkansas, uh, visited some cousins, could hear the banjos playing, uh, then we, we went on to, we went on to the Youth with a Mission campus, and, and Andy's checking out a program there called uh, a DTS, and that is a discipleship training, and so we were looking into that. And I'm sitting there with the director, and I'm asking all these questions about it, and he's explaining, filling in all the details for me. And here's the thing. It is a six-month program, and they take the people who apply for this, this six-month program, and they live in community together. They do an intense discipleship training program for three months, and then they spend eight to ten weeks out in a mission field somewhere. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going until they get there, until they get to the campus. I mean, they, they know when they get on the plane, right? 
I'm, I'm listening to all of his really good answers for all of my really tough questions. And the irony is not escaping me. That we form ministries outside of the church in order to build community, practice discipleship, and then send people into the mission field. All things that we know, we all know, right, that these things should be happening in the church, but we also know that they generally don't. We know that we tend to not build the kind of community that we need. We tend to not practice discipleship, and we tend to not send each other off into the missions. Why is that? It's not a new phenomenon. It's certainly not limited to us. This is the church everywhere in America as I've experienced it. When I was a youth minister, it became very clear to me very quickly. You get a whole lot more done when you take kids away for a weekend or a week. You get more done in that weekend or week than you do in a year of ministry back home at church. What is that about? Well, it's not that there aren't wonderful believers. It's not that there aren't followers of Jesus, because of course there are. It's that the church has a distraction problem. We are distracted with the business of being the church. Now, we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. But let's be honest. Sometimes the bride is a bridezilla. Sometimes the bride is so consumed with having her day, her way, that the bride is the only thing that matters. And the groom sort of gets forgotten. Yeah, he's part of the mix because we can't have the wedding without him. But we're so focused on how we want to see the bride look on her special day that we're not concerned with what the groom wants anymore. but we only exist as the bride because the groom has chosen us. Paul says to us, if you're living in the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that in that space you have all the love that you've been searching for, all the hope, you have power, you have joy, you have freedom. And he says, why would you trade that for this brokenness Instead, have you lost your head? If you feel like I'm talking to you this morning, like I wrote these words, was thinking of you, you're right. And if you're thinking, he's not talking to me, you are right where Satan wants you to be. Because this is not a message that Paul sent to some of us. This is a message that Paul sends to every last one of us. And the best way for the enemy to keep you deceived is to make you feel like you cannot be deceived. We can be deceived. We can lose our way. We can get so distracted by the details that we forget 
what the big picture is. I have been deeply convicted personally in my study of Colossians for this series. I have been looking at my own life and asking myself, what are the things that I substitute in my life for the supremacy of Jesus Christ? What are the things in our household that we substitute for the supremacy of Jesus Christ? And here's the tough one. What are the things in our church, in our fellowship, that we substitute for the supremacy of Jesus Christ? What are the deceptive philosophies, as Paul says, the hollow and deceptive philosophies that we've adopted? And it occurs to me that these things do exist in our fellowships, in, in our homes, in our personal lives, and sometimes Sometimes we know they're false. If you asked us, we would deny that we believe in them. But if you look at our lives, if you look at what we say and what we do and how we live, it becomes very clear that we talk and act and live as if these things are true, even though intellectually we know that they're not. So I started to write things down. I started to write things down, and I ended up with a handful of, of items. I shared them with the leadership uh, just to make sure I wasn't losing my mind. I'm going to share a few of them with you right now. Our deceptive philosophies, things that, things that we act as if are true right now in our fellowship, even though we know they're not true. Here's the first one. The rights and rules of salvation are more important, or as or more important, than actually following Jesus. One of the things that we had an opportunity to do last, last weekend, we were out of town we, uh, on a Sunday morning. There, there are no Christian churches uh, in this little town. Uh, so we decided we went to church with a friend there. It was a Southern Baptist church. And I've been to Southern Baptist services plenty of times. Uh, it was a Southern Baptist church. I was hanging out with them. And, uh, you know, uh, in the South, Southern Baptists and Church of Christ boys like me, there's this, there's this historic tension, right? We, we, historically, we've, we've argued with each other and we've debated with each other and and do you know what we debate about? Baptism. Here's the interesting thing. Southern Baptists and Restoration churches, like the Church of the Christ and the Christian Church, most likely churches in America to insist that you be baptized. But we insist for different reasons, and so we fight with each other. That's what we do. We've been having this battle for a long time. So, we arrive, Sunday morning services, young pastor gets up, very passionate guy, guess what he's preaching on? Conversation with Nicodemus, need to be born again of water and spirit. I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. He 
He's telling us, he's telling his congregation how important it is that they really need to be baptized if they haven't followed this command that they need to. Heard this message from my evangelical friends many times. And all throughout, he's weaving into it. I want to make sure you understand that baptism is not a requirement of your salvation, but it is something that you really ought to do. It's not a requirement because that would be works, and we are not required to do any works in order to be saved. And then we get to the end of the service, and we have an altar call, and you need to raise your hand. Oh, let's say the sinner's prayer. Oh. So it's not any works that we need to chuck out. It's just certain works. Right? I'm thinking, how did we get here? Well, then I think about my own background. Always easy for me to pick on other denominations, right? Think about my own background. Restoration churches champion baptism to the point that we narrow down our salvation to the exact moment that your last square inch of exposed skin passes underneath the water. And then all the sin flakes off, and when you come back up, the Holy Spirit says, hey, look, a sinless person is going to inhabit their life. In effect, our evangelical brothers and sisters have taught a gospel in which if you get saved and then don't live your life for Christ, it's really out of God's hands. He's powerless to do anything about it. We have taught a gospel that says if you're a follower of Jesus, but you didn't get your baptism right, you didn't do it the right way at the right time with the right understanding of it. God is powerless to save you. And you see the error that we've both committed is that we have developed our theologies in opposition to one another. Our theology is not taken from a clear reading of the scripture. It's taking, taken from the argument that we have with one another and the battle that we feel like we need to have, the debate. The reality is, if you follow Jesus, baptism will be a part of your picture because he calls you to it, because he commands it, and because he did it himself. Beyond that, I don't care what your rationale for baptism is. I care that you're following Jesus. These are the things... These are the things that we get distracted by. We've both gone off the rails here because we have made this all about getting saved rather than about following Christ. Folks, there is no such thing as being saved and not being a follower of Jesus. We ask what we have to do in order to be saved, and that is the wrong question. Because as soon as I ask what it is exactly that I have to do in order to get saved, then I come up with my list, I come up with my items, and I check them off, and then I'm saved. That's my moment. 
What we need to ask is, what does it mean to believe in and follow Jesus? How do I know this is a problem for us? Because we, for decades, we have tolerated churchgoers with no spiritual fruit in their lives because we, at some point in their past, got them wet. Remember that passage where Jesus says, go out and get people saved, plant churches, fill them up with members? No, you don't remember that passage because that passage doesn't exist. Jesus says in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. The core of the gospel, no matter what fellowship, no matter what background you're from, the core of the gospel is about following Jesus. Everything else that we're supposed to do in this life will follow naturally from following Jesus if we're sincere about that one thing. To believe in Jesus and fail to follow him is like finding the cure that you've been looking for and deciding you don't need to take it. It doesn't make any sense. But we behave like it does. We act like it does because We've also sort of played this game believing that congregational membership is an adequate substitute for discipleship. So Jesus calls us to be and to make disciples. But if you could be a member, that'll probably do. We function sometimes as though Being a member of the organization of the church is the same thing as being a member of the body of Christ, and I promise you it isn't. I can be a member of the National Geographic Society. It doesn't make me an archaeologist. I could be a member of St. James Sports Club. It would not make me an athlete. I'd like to pretend. We sometimes act like if you're on the rolls, if you're in the church directory, if your birthday gets printed in the bulletin, it means you're actually in the book of life, and that's not what that means. And we have reached a point in the American church where you can be a member of a church, and it means you're going to engage in some Jesus-themed programming, but if we're not following Jesus if we're not disciples of Jesus, if we're not on mission for Jesus, it doesn't make any difference. But we've also convinced ourselves at times that the physical existence of the congregation is an adequate substitute for its mission. If we could just be here, just being here is enough. Just surviving, just existing And we make plans, and we create structures, and we design strategies to keep the organization solvent. And we acknowledge that we may not be engaging the mission of Jesus Christ, but hey, at least we can keep the doors open. 
brothers and sisters, if we are not following Jesus, if we're not living in the mystery and the supremacy of Jesus, if we're not passionately, recklessly, relentlessly pursuing the mission of Jesus, we don't deserve to keep the doors open. And it would be better for us spiritually if we lost it all, if we lost our building, if we lost our bank accounts, if we lost every worldly thing we have, it would be better for us if it meant that we chose then to live in the mission of Jesus Christ. The startling reality the startling reality is that we have fostered a church environment in America in which church membership and Christianity are somehow separate from being followers of Jesus. Being here this morning, you may or may not be a follower of Jesus. We know that you're a church attender. We thank you for that. There's a difference shouldn't be a difference between Christian and disciple, but there is, and we know there is. And if the world rejects our message, if the world refuses to hear what we have to say about what is true, I can't help but think it's because on the whole, on the whole, we have been endorsing a cure that we ourselves refuse to take. Paul says, look, this is what Jesus does. Jesus uses his authority to reconcile everything to himself. And that's where we come to this morning, Colossians chapter 3. Since then, he says, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says, look, here's, here's the strategy. Here's the surgery. If your head is coming unattached, here's how you, here's how you sew it back on. Here's how you reconnect the tissue. Here's how you restore the head. First of all, set your heart. Set your heart on things above. If you believe that Jesus is really supreme, that he has all the wisdom and knowledge, that he is the best and most perfect judge of everything, then you can certainly trust him with what you will. Set your heart on things above. We are a culture that adores emotions. We adore feelings. We champion dreams. We want everybody to do what they're passionate about. Here is the challenge that Paul issues to us. This is a deliberate thing. He doesn't say, sit about and allow Jesus to take your heart. He says, you set your heart 
where he is. Which means I take my emotions, I take my feelings, I take my passions, I take my dreams, and I put them in him. I give that to him. It's his. He can manage it. Whatever he decides is best for my heart will be best for my heart. Then he says, set your mind on things above. If you believe that Jesus is supreme, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of everything and the head of the church, then you can certainly trust him with your thoughts. So as we seek for truth and we seek for righteousness, we seek for reason, where philosophies would entrap us, Jesus guides us. We give to him our minds. Then he has this really curious idea that our life is hidden in Christ. Hide, hide your life. Specifically, he says your life, because you died, your old, li- your old life, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. All of the mystery of life is hidden in Christ. And now, when we're in Christ, our life is hidden right alongside that mystery. It's hidden there with Christ. Christ is your life, in fact, he says. Then he says, when he returns... Your life will be revealed in its glory. Now, I don't have time to get into this as much as I'd like to today. But I want you to understand that there is an a inadvertent false teaching that, that we have repeated often in the church, which is that the whole focus of the gospel is getting you into heaven. Heaven is, according to scriptures, a way station. It is a temporary destination for those who've passed on. The reality is, Christ has it in his focus to create a new heaven and a new earth, that everything would be made new. Now, you think, okay, we've heard all this language before. We've heard you talking about this before. Let me tell you why it's significant when you're making plans for your life. Are there things that you'd like to do? Places you'd like to go? Things that you've always wanted to see? Me too. Me too. Then I think, "Hmm, I'm going to run out of time. I'm going to run out of time and I'm not going to see all the things that I wanted to see. I'm not going to... There's all these glorious places in this planet, all these beautiful cities, all these fantastic elements of God's creation. He made the world with such infinite diversity. I grew up going to Yosemite. You ever been to Yosemite? Really gorgeous place, fantastic place. Go to Yosemite, and uh, particularly if you only visit it once or twice, 
you'll spend all of your time in Yosemite Valley, right? That's where everybody goes. That's where all the photos are from. If you see photos of Half Dome and all that kind of stuff, they're all from Yosemite Valley. That's like, if this was the valley, this room would be the park. All right? This tiny little, tiny little piece. Nobody, people who've lived their whole lives going to Yosemite National Park, nobody has seen all that God has put there. That's just one place, one corner of this magnificent creation that he's made for us. I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you know why the creation that God gave us has infinite diversity? It's because he intends to give you eternity to explore it. You will not ever be bored with Christ in eternity. He has created so much beauty, so much wonder. And whatever I don't see in this life, understand this, I am going to explore every nook and crevice of this creation, and I'm going to see cities that are made that much more beautiful because there is no crime, no racial tension, no violence, no hatred, because every knee will have bowed to Jesus Christ. The glory of my life is not fully revealed because it's hidden in Christ. A lot of my friends, even my Christian friends, think me a bit of a fool because I've made so many decisions over the years that favored the opportunity to be in ministry. It hasn't served me well in physical terms. I haven't been able to stop. I resigned from my position in Colorado. I told my neighbors about it. They're lapsed Catholics. Told my neighbors about it. They congratulated me. Congratulated me for quitting ministry. That was a step up in the world. <laughs> the things that we do for Christ, the way that we serve Him in mission, the priorities that we've set in our household, they don't make sense even to many of our Christian friends. And that should be a wake up call. They certainly don't make sense to the world. Because the world thinks we only have so much time here and we have to suck the marrow out of life. We have to get all that we can. We have to accumulate all that we can. We have to be all that we were meant to be. I promise you, this is not all I was meant to be. And the full glory of what Christ has in mind for me won't be revealed until he returns. an idea that I want you to start wrapping your brain around, and that is this. If we want to restore the head, if we want to make sure that Jesus really is in charge, that he's running the show, and that we're following him and not our own dictates, we will take the follow. Oh. We take the lead. We take charge. 
we take control? Or can we take the follow? You see, Christ is supreme. Christ will continue to be supreme whether we follow him or not. The interesting thing is Christ doesn't say, you have to follow me. He invites us to follow him, and he leaves the choice to us. Now, if you choose not to follow Christ, you're essentially choosing to ignore the fact that he's in charge of the entire universe. So, one might question your reason, your sanity, your intelligence. But he doesn't make you do it. See, this is the thing that we need to learn about submission in the church and in the world is we, we have this idea that submission means that we're under somebody's foot. The reality is we submit to Christ as a choice. We take the follow. It's deliberate. Notice all of these steps, all of these uh, bits of advice that Paul gives to us, they are incredibly deliberate. They are intentional. We have to be intentional about following Jesus because the minute that we're not, the distractions will come in and they will take over. You say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. These are the things that we believe, but I will take my chances. I'll go it alone and we'll see how it all turns out. I'll follow my own way. I do wake up sometimes and look at my life and wonder about the things that I should have done different. We introverts are really given to this. We spend a lot of time agonizing over conversations we wish went differently, choices that we wish we'd made. easy to get caught up in that space. It's easy to let the enemy start playing with your head or telling you, you, you should have taken a different path. You should have made a different choice. You, you could have been something more. Here's the one thing I know. My plan, no matter how great it is, no matter how grand, will never be better than his. This can't be. Discipleship is a deliberate submission to Christ. And here's the truth. We are going to be overwhelmed by Christ. All of us, we are going to be overwhelmed by Christ. We can be overwhelmed by his judgment, or we can be overwhelmed by his mercy.